You're listening to the sermon podcast of Mountain View Church. Whether you're here catching up on last week's message or digging through a past series, we're so grateful you've tuned in today. Our prayer is the next 30 to 40 minutes helps you become a more whole follower of Jesus. If you're local and would like to join us, we'd love to see you this Sunday. For those who can't make it in person, services are also streamed on Facebook and YouTube. All the information about service times, what we have for kids, and much more can be found on our website, almsville.church. Now, let's open our hearts and minds to today's message. Welcome. Glad that you're here. My name is Mike, lead pastor here at Mountain View. Apologies to those of you watching at home. Probably weren't able to watch that. We're not able to show some of those clips uh, on our live stream. But if you're unfamiliar with with the plot of Hoosiers, okay. Uh, by the way, does anybody know what year that came out? 1986. Right. I was three. So uh, some, of, you know, it's some of you just went, dang, he's old, you know, and and others of you were like, oh, what a baby, you know, just. Completely depends on where you're at in the spectrum, not about me, right? Um, but so in that movie, in Hoosiers, it's inspired by a true story. Um, if you didn't know, basketball is a big deal in the state of Indiana. Uh, it is the sport in Indiana, uh, as you can tell if you ever watched their football team. Um, but <laughs> oh, I had to sneak that in there. Um, but so this small town team from Hickory, Indiana, makes the 1954 state championship. Kind of defies the odds. Keeps you know it's a David versus Goliath kind of story. And so in this clip, they're walking into Butler Fieldhouse in Indianapolis, which is this massive uh, you know court that they've never they've never played in front of that many people before. And so they're kind of ha- starting to feel that kind of jitters and and stress about about the size and the scale of this thing. And so that's when their their coach, who's played by Gene Hackman in the movie, gets out the measuring tape. And has the other player, you know, measure from the foul line to the hoop and the height, you know, look, it's 10 feet, look at the height. And, and it's kind of the idea of like, hey, you're going to be playing the same game that you already know how to play, that you've already won at several times to get here. Okay, why does the coach do that? Because there, there's something about, about being able to measure it that brings us comfort. Right, the ability to lay something out, to see it, to wrap your mind around it, kind of get your arms around it brings us some measure of comfort, and I would say even control. Like, okay, what can I control in this situation? I can control that it's 10 feet. I already know that, right? And so we measure all kinds of stuff in life. Birthdays, uh, time, height, weight, the weather, how many calories in versus how many calories out. Some of us are not going to be doing that today while watching the football game. This is not a good day to track calories. Um, Online influence, how many friends and clicks and all of that, uh, the gas in your car, right? I mean, you name it, we measure it because we think like it brings us some comfort and sense of control. If I can measure it, then maybe I can influence it. Enter God, who doesn't seem to care about any of that. Right, we're in this series called None Like Him, uh, looking at what theologians call the incommunicable attributes. That is a mouthful. Uh, but there's lots of things that we know to be true about God. The incommunicable attributes are the things that are only true about God, right? Not about us. There's none like him. Um, and so last week we talked about his incomprehensibility, this idea that there are layers to God that are mystery to us, that our finite brains can't just like like comprehend, right? Today, I want to have a similar but different conversation, and that is around the idea that God is infinite. 
okay? He's infinite. He is the God of no limits. And try as we might, we cannot measure him on any level. And so I want to quickly go through a couple scriptures here on the front. If you want to write these down for later, you can take a picture of the screen. They're in your Bible app. You can quickly flip to them if you can get to them in in your Bible. Um, But Psalm 147, right? That's where I want to start. Psalm 147, verse 4 and 5 says, He, so it's, it's talking about God, right? God determines the number of stars and calls them each by name. Think about that. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has what? No limit. Has no limit. Okay, the last word there, um, translated as no limit in our English Bibles, is actually a Hebrew word, mispar. And it's used actually quite a bit in, in the Old Testament, but it literally means countless. Okay, so one of the ways you see this is in the story of uh, Joseph in Egypt, right? Joseph rises up into prominence in, in Pharaoh's household, and he's preparing Egypt for a famine. They've gotten word. They know that there's a famine that's going to be coming into the land. So he's stockpiling food and goods, right, for them to survive. And the Bible says that he stockpiled so much food, it was like sand of the sea. That's how it described the grain. It was like sand of the sea. And it uses this word mispar, like you couldn't possibly measure. How Can, can you count how much sand is on a seashore? You can't, right? That's the whole point. The psalmist says the same thing, uses the same word to talk about God, specifically in this verse to talk about his understanding, his power, that it's countless, like it's unlimited. You can't measure it. Okay, here's another passage. This is, again, from the Old Testament. This is the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 12. It says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Now, there's question marks on these, but you understand these are rhetorical questions, right? Have you ever, maybe even in a sermon or just whatever, like it's actually a rhetorical question and you didn't know it and so you answered it and it was kind of awkward, right? Like that's like this verse, you're not supposed to read this and go, who has measured the water? Maybe Bob, um, I think, or... John's pretty cool. Maybe John has done. No, like the answer is nobody, right? You're not supposed to answer it. The answer is only God. So in other words, God has measured everything and no one can measure God. He's measured it with his, he's measured the breadth of heaven with his hand. Like you're supposed to read this and go, huh? That's the point. That's the point. You can't put God on a scale. Right? You, you can't have God stand up next to the wall and like mark his height year by year. Do you do, ever do that with your kids? Go, oh, look at how Johnny's growing, you know? You can't do that with God. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about how God is immutable, meaning he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. So God is infinite. He's measureless. So right off the bat, we are confronted with something that's kind of hard for us, if we're honest. I think most of us that there's a part of this being in relationship with God that's totally out of our control, right? Because why, why do we measure things? Why do we scale things? It's so that we can have some sense of control or influence. And if God is measureless, then there's something about this relationship that you and I can't control. Does that make sense? So lately, um, I've been really frustrated by technology, like, like really driving me crazy. Um, I... 
I remember when like certain pieces of technology came out, like I remember when everyone started getting the internet in their house and stuff. And the promise was that it was going to make your life so much easier, right? Technology just is, makes everything so much more efficient and, and simple and whatever. And now I spend half my life troubleshooting the technology that was supposed to make my life better, right? Um, so like in our house right now, we switched Wi-Fi and like the signal isn't strong enough, so it's not working with our TV downstairs, and so you got to get all this stuff figured out. Cassie's iPad suddenly stopped holding a charge. It's only like two years old, and so I had to swap that out and go up to Portland, and um, my computer isn't connecting to the printer. That's fun. Uh, one issue after another, right? Even in our church, right? And those of you watching the live stream, you're like, yeah, I know. Um, we, like, we always have, like, we've always got issues, man, Things don't work the way, you know, our TV down in the lobby was on this morning. I just noticed it's not on right now. It's, it stopped receiving signal. And so it's just, Shelly and I meet together and, and it's just like, can we just not do this? Can we just like skip over all this? Um, and so I find myself, I don't know about you, but when tech isn't doing his job, I find myself thinking, just do your job. Just, you got one job to work, to do what I need you to do. I bought you, I own you. Just, I don't have time to figure this out. Just do your job, Right. Some of us, if we're honest, that's kind of how we approach God. Like, I came to you, I invited you into my life, I repented of my sin, I declared you Lord of my life, which means you're the king, not me. And I started coming to church more, and I started reading the Bible, and I, did, I started doing all of these things, but you didn't work for me. And that situation in my life isn't any different, isn't better now that I'm a Christian. And I don't, it's just, you're not fixing things, God. And so what a lot of us do is, because, and I get, I've been there and it's hard and it's, and it's frustrating. So what a lot of us do is we try to take control and we try to force the issue, right? We, we think, okay, God, if you're not going to come through, I'm going to come through for myself, and I'm going to make this happen. And we don't have time this morning for you to share how you've done that and went, whoops, that didn't work either. Right? Actually, that made things a lot worse. Right? And so th this is actually the, pl the plot of, of Scripture, like from the beginning to the end, especially the Old Testament. Right? You start with Adam and Eve in this perfect garden. Everything's wonderful. They've got everything that they need. They're in perfect harmony with God and with each other, with creation. And things are going really well until this little serpent shows up and starts whispering lies and he gets them to believe that God is withholding from them, right? That there is a good thing that God is just like teasing them with and apparently just doesn't want them to have and enjoy. And so when they realize that they can't, God's not gonna give it to them, they say, I'm just gonna take it. A few chapters later, Tower of Babel, it's a story about a group of people who are like, I'm going to be like God. We're going to build this thing all the way up to the heavens and we're going to rival God. We're going to know what he knows. We're going to be just like him. Abraham and Sarah, who are promised a child, but it's not happening on their timeline. So they say, well, I guess we'll just fix this. Hey, Hagar, come over here. And Abraham has a baby with not his wife, but a slave it's the same story over and over. It's finite people reading the situation from their finite perspective, 
coming to the conclusion that God won't or can't come through for them. And so they are going to have to take control and make it happen themselves. And every time they do that, things go from bad to worse. And you and I, we do this too, okay? This isn't just in the Old Testament. We do this in so many ways. In fact, I think most of the sin in our life isn't because we just wake up one day and go, I really feel like being rebellious. I think most of the sin in our life is because we don't want to accept limitations. We don't want to accept that we are finite and that we have limits and that we, we always want to push the boundaries, right? And we fashion idols not because we want to be idolaters, not because we don't want God. We just want a God we can control. And it's really easy to control an idol. You can make it look however you want. You can make it do whatever you want. We want a God we can understand and control, but by definition, God is beyond both of those things. He's beyond our understanding. He's beyond our control. He is infinite. Listen to how Isaiah puts it. This is chapter 55. This was actually in your uh, life group questions this last week. If you're in a sermon-based group, you discussed this passage together. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I'm probably not supposed to admit this as a pastor, but This is one of those scriptures that I read and go, I don't really like that one. (laughs) I love the scripture, but like I read that and I go, that kind of stinks, right? This is is the opposite of the Hoosiers clip. The whole point of measuring all that stuff out was so that his players could go, oh, I get it now. I understand. Look, cool technology. Awesome. (laughs) This is like, this is the Hoosiers clip where, where Isaiah says, look, if you could get out your measuring tape, and you could somehow stretch it out and try to figure me out, you would come to the conclusion, God says, that I'm not playing the same game that you are. We're not on the same playing field that you're used to. It's totally beyond that, which is uncomfortable and out of control. doesn't bring, I don't read that and go, I feel so comforted now. I read that and go, oh man, no wonder I don't understand. Not that God doesn't care. I'm not saying that. He cares about what's going on in our life. He cares about our perspective, but it's just that. It's our perspective, which is finite, which is limited, and God's is not. So let's go back to the question that I introduced last week when we started the series. It's really like the so what question. Like, if this is true, so so what? Because I recognize this series is pretty uh, theologically heavy. It's more of an intellectual type series, and if we're... If we're not careful, I mean, some of us love that kind of stuff, but if we're not careful, we'll just kind of learn a lot of facts about God, which isn't the goal. The goal is to be formed into the image of God and to figure out how to worship him and live for him. And like, so what what does this mean for my life? So the question is, how does knowing that God is infinite shape the way that I live? Okay, how does knowing that God is infinite shape the way that I live? And so here's the first realization that I'm gonna give you. Knowing that God is unlimited helps me trust his limits, okay? He's unlimited, I'm not, I'm limited. 
Some of those are God-given. And knowing that he's unlimited helps me trust the limits that he has set forth. As I said a minute ago, I think a lot of our sin comes from refusing to accept these limitations. Okay, we want to go beyond them. We want to test the boundaries. Even boundaries that God has established for our good, and in the back of our mind we know that, but we think, well, maybe not, you know? Maybe I know a little bit better than God. In some ways, we want to be our own God. This is also the story of Scripture. (laughs) People wanting to be their own God. God, you're not in charge of my life. I'm in charge of my life. I can do whatever I want. And what's really ironic about what happens in the Garden of Eden is that Adam and Eve, they fall for this serpent's lie, right? God's holding out on you. The reason he doesn't want you to eat from that tree is because he knows if you do, you're going to be just like him and you're going to know good and evil, right? He doesn't want you to be like him. That's what the serpent basically says. The ironic thing is that Adam and Eve were already like God. They were created in the image and likeness of God. So am I. So are you. Right? Humans are created to reflect God's nature. But that's not enough for us. We don't want to just reflect God. We want to rival God. We want to be our own God. And so from a very early age, we figure out where the limits are, and then we start to test them, right? Those of you who have young kids, you're like, I thought that started when they were 13, but they're already doing it, right? And I, we all know right, that, that stops when you get to a certain age. We just mature out of wanting to test the boundaries, right? We just become so spiritually and physically mature that we don't really need to play those games anymore, right? There's something in us that says, I know that this life is great. I so, God, I so appreciate all these wonderful things that you've given me and set her for, my, for me. But that thing over there, the one thing you say I can't have, I really want that one. Give me. It's the big red button. <laughs> it's like, Ugh. I've got that in me. You do too. An illustration that came to my mind this week, I want to show you a a picture. This is going down memory lane for me, a little bit of a blast for the past. Um, This is the house I grew up in. So this is where I lived until I think I was uh, 13. Uh, This is 303 Northwood Street, Wilmington, Ohio. Um, This last summer, took the whole family back there and was able to drive my kids around the the block. I say, this is where your dad lived, and they weren't that impressed. They didn't. They were like, why are we here? Like, who cares? And I'm like teary-eyed in the front seat, you know? Um, so this is a 728-square-foot house. It's two-bedroom, one-bath on the corner of, of the road here, which meant my older brother and I had to share a room, which I say that now, and people are like, what? Like, that was normal. Everyone I knew shared a room with their sibling. How many of you shared a room with your brother or sister? Yeah, now there's like four of us in the house and we're like, we need like 12 bedrooms and six baths. Like it's just cramped in here, you know? This is like a normal size house, right? For a long, long time. Um, and so we, we shared a room. And what was funny about that is we had bunk beds. How many of you had bunk beds? Yeah, those are good days. And so my brother was on the top bunk because he was four years older than me and I was on the bottom bunk. And so even though we shared bunk beds, we still needed our own space. 
And so how we would do that, my brother would find pillows and blankets and string or whatever he could find. And he would like section off the side of the room that was his. And me being the loving, compassionate, super mature younger brother would always stay out of his space. You've got that in you too, don't you? No, no way. I'm like, oh, there's a line. I like tiptoe up to it and kind of, you know, I'm going to jump over. I'm going to jump back before he can smack me. I'm going to put my army men and my matchbox cars just on the other side of the line, right? It would have been better if there was no line because that line goes, ooh, so that's where I can kind of have some fun, right? We've got this in us that says, where's the limit? And I wonder, what, I wonder what would happen on the other side. Even if this limit's for my own good, I knew if I went over, I'd probably get smacked. But I'd still do it anyway, because that's what brothers do. And sisters. I just didn't have one, but now I got two girls, and it might be worse, actually. I've got this, and you've got this. The unpopular biblical word for this is sin. Now, sin is not just the action. It's not just the, the crossing of the line. It's the malformation of our hearts. It's the misshaped desires and affections that sin wrought that causes me to even want to cross the line. That thing is sin as well. It's not just the action. It's the nature and the hard thing is we live in a culture that rather than discouraging sin actually encourages it because it views limitations as shackles that we need to just like break free from, right? If we want to really be free, then you're not free unless you can do whatever you want is how we think about freedom in our culture. And any kind of limitation is seen as keeping you from being your authentic self, And there's really insidious evil ways that that plays out. But there's also like kind of hidden ways that we don't really think about it. Like the way that we think about work and time. Some of us have this mindset in this culture that says, you know, I got to outwork everybody. I got to show up to the office first and go home last. I'm going to cram my calendar with as many activities for my kids as I possibly can because I don't want them to miss out on anything. And, you know, YOLO, we got to just, we got to get it in, you know. And then we wonder why we're so exhausted, why our relationships are so thin, why we're anxious. And along comes God, and he says, hey, I've, I've got this gift for you called the Sabbath, where you would limit yourself, and you would rest, and you would play and worship, and you would let me run the world for one day without you. Because I'm unlimited and you are not. Or think about how our culture views and treats sex. Some of you just looked up for the first time all morning. (laughs) Hi. There's a episode in the show Friends, Cassie and I, when we first got married, Cassie loved Friends. Anybody watch that sitcom? 
and made me watch every episode of it like three times. And I just wanted her to like me. So I'm like, I love this show. Um, no, it is good. I like it. It's a good show. You know how it is in the dating thing. You're like, oh, I just don't want her to think anything bad about me. So she'll stay with me. You know, now I'm like, I don't care. You know, no, I'm just kidding. But there's a scene where Monica is dating a guy. It's actually played by Tom Selleck, the original stash. And, uh, they're dating, and they decide they want to just be friends, but they want to keep being intimate with each other. And so Monica asks him, you know, do you think that we can just be friends who have sex? And his response, he kind of pauses his response. He's like, yeah, you know, it'll, it'll just be something we do together, like racquetball. And she's like, oh, okay. And, I mean, it's kind of silly, but, like, that's kind of how our world thinks about it, right? It's just physical. It's just a transaction between two people, and there's no repercussions. There's, it doesn't really matter how many people you hook up with. It's just why limit yourself, right? And yet a couple years ago, there was a secular study that was done. This was not a religious study. This was not done by Christians or church, but there was a study done a couple years ago of 16,000 Americans and just kind of tracked with their life and asked them questions about happiness and fulfillment and purpose in their life. And the study of 16,000 Americans found this. This was their conclusion. We found that the ideal number of sexual partners, if you want to maximize your personal happiness, is calculated at one. One. And God says, here's a gift. It's called marriage. And it's for a lifetime. And I know it seems limiting to just kind of say, really, one person my whole life? It seems limiting, but within that container is actually where intimacy can flourish and freedom is found. And our world keeps saying, no, that's not true. Like, just do whatever you want and don't tell me what to do. And like, we see the repercussions of that over and over and over. Or we could talk about money, right? Giving seems like it would limit my net worth. And yet the Bible says if I'm open-handed, then I'll, then I'll have more somehow. And that it's more blessed to give than receive. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. That seems really limiting, but it's like upside down, right? Knowing that God is unlimited, unlimited in wisdom, unlimited in love, unlimited in action and in energy helps me trust the limits that he set for me. Does that make sense? Okay. And then secondly, knowing that God is unlimited helps me embrace my limits. Helps me embrace my limits. There's this whole philosophical movement in our culture. It's actually been at work for like 60, 70 years now, but it's called transhumanism. And I won't pretend to be an expert on this because it's kind of above my head, but it's pretty wild. The basic idea is that we can use technology because as we've already seen this morning, always works the way that we want it to. But we can use technology like AI, you know, that's the buzzy, buzzy one right now, artificial intelligence, cryogenics, genetic engineering, all of these kinds of tools to so improve our capabilities and capacities as humans that we can transcend our humanity. There's, there's even some transhumanists that their, their essential project is to slow down or even completely eliminate the process of aging. That's some good job security. Because uh, I don't think we're there yet. And I don't think we're going to get there. Right? One of my favorite theologians, Stanley Hauerwas, he, he once said, the promise of modern medicine, and I would say modern technology, 
is the promise that we can somehow get out of life alive. That's what we're sold. If we just get smart enough and better enough and if we can just raise this much money for research and whatever, then somehow we will escape and we will get out of life alive. And yet, no matter how advanced we get, we can't escape reality. That I am limited. That there is a limit to my existence. And that brings about anxiety. That, that brings about some fear. Now, on the one hand, we're made in God's image, which means we are full of divine potential. It means we can be in relationship with God. Uh, it, it means that we can reflect his character and behavior, and we can, we can rule the world with creativity and compassion the same way that God does. That's, all of that is part of what it means to be created in the image of God. On the other hand, we are also created from dust. And that's kind of sobering. Right. Sin enters the picture in Genesis chapter 3. And here's one of the things that God says to Adam. This is one of the consequences of the fall. It's one of the consequences of sin. It says, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Again, this is kind of a sobering thought that you and I, are biodegradable. There will be a point in which our mortal bodies cease to sustain life. We are from the dust and to dust we will return. We were born with limits and we will die with limits. Our bodies can only be in place once, or sorry, can only be in one place at one time. Do you ever try to, to transport yourself Good luck with that, right? You try to drive the kids to their thing and also be at work. And it's like, you can only be at one place at one time. Um, we talked last week about our minds and how limit, like there is a limit on what we can understand. The smartest, highest IQ person, like they will, they will cap out compared to the unlimited IQ of God. Um, each of us have certain gifts and abilities, but we don't have all of them. I've only got a few. So do you, which is why we need each other. God set it up that way, that my limits would be met by your resources and vice versa. Emotional capacity, your family of origin, your socioeconomic status, where you were born, which you had no control over, the season of life you're in. I mean, there's, there are so many ways that we are limited. And yet those limitations are also a gift. They also remind us of who we are in light of who God is. And it's often in our limitations that God does his best work. I'm thinking about the scripture where he says it, that in our weakness, he is strong. Or Jen Wilkin, who wrote the book, None Like Him, where I, I took the title of this series. Listen to this. She says, when I reach the end of my strengths, I worship the one whose strength never fails. And you could change that word out, strengths. You could change that. When I reach the end of my understanding, I worship the one whose understanding never fails. Right? When, I, when I reach the end of, of, of my knowledge or my wisdom or my grace or whatever, like, I worship the infinite one who's measureless with that. Right? Our limits actually can provoke us to worship God. And they're a daily reminder, I don't run the world. I don't even run my own life. 
right? It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Because if it's all on you and you mess up, which you will, not only do you have no one else to blame, but no one's coming to your rescue. Like it's all on you. You are on your own. But the good news is that it's not all up to you, that you're limited, but God isn't. And in Romans chapter five, Paul says, for just as through the disobedience of one man, talking about Adam, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that trespass might increase. But listen to this good news. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. You and I, we, we have that thing that we want to, I'm a line crosser. Hi, my name's Mike and I cross lines. <laughs> I try to be my own God. I try to pretend that I'm unlimited, that I don't need boundaries, that I can do whatever I want. And when I cross that line, God's grace is already there, ready. Ready for me to say, hey, I, I messed up. Right? Where my sin increases, grace increases all the more. His grace is infinite. So as we close this morning, the band's gonna come back up. There's a hymn I grew up singing that as I was writing this message this week, it kept coming to my mind. I text Shelly, I'm like, do you know this hymn? She's like, no. I'm like, well, can you, can you learn it in 48 hours <laughs> or whatever it was? Because it just really moves me and it speaks to the infinite nature of God. Um, it was written in 1917 by Frederick Lehman, so a few years ago. The words actually even go further back. They go back a thousand years to a Jewish rabbi who is writing a prelude to the Ten Commandments. We think of the Ten Commandments as rules, right? Limits. And yet the rabbi was writing this commentary to remind us that all of God's words, including his limits, are good and are actually from the love of God. That's the name of the song, The Love of God. So if you know it, you can join in and sing. You can stand if you want. If not, I, I pray that you'll learn it or just allow the deep words. That, this hymn is so rich. The words of this hymn are incredibly full. And I just pray that they would sink into your soul, the infinite God whose love is measureless for you.